First John lesson two, we're looking at righteousness and sin. I should have put it sin and righteousness because first part is sin. All right. We're studying the book thematically. Uh, if that doesn't give you the level of detail that you want, you, I have to apologize, but that's the way that I do things. Um, uh, we go where I want to go, and hopefully you'll get something out of the scriptures that, that, uh, that I go through. Um, and I'm, I'm thankful that you're patient with me in that regard. But going through thematically, I think, and I'm not completely sure, but I'm thinking that it will give us glimpses that we might not have seen if we just went through it uh, exegetically or chronologi- uh, chronologically going from the beginning to the end. Uh, so it, it, I think that it's going to give us different perspectives. And I know that for myself, I've already seen them. Um, uh, we are going to focus also on, the, on not only the key words, but also looking at the key words in, 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 uh, uh, in, a, in their verb uh, form and also plural form, the number, number and, 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 and verb form. Uh, the reason why is because we want to see how Judaism, let, let's assume for a moment that Judaism has always accepted this book as canon. How would Judaism read this book? Not how would Judaism read this book in reaction to Christianity. How would Judaism treat this book? Okay? And that's, I think that we're going to see things that we may not have seen otherwise going through 1 John. If we think, how would Judaism, how would John, Yochanan, a Jew, an observant Jew, have seen this book? And the writers that he wrote to. Uh, in the previous lesson, we saw that was a while ago. It's been a month. Uh, we saw the reason for writing the book. It was written in stages for sta- all stages of, of maturity within the faith. Right? Not literal children. Not literal young young men. Not literal fathers. But rather written to people at various stages. All inclusive. Everybody's included. Even the mothers, even though they're not named. Um, and that they could know that they had eternal life. And to continue to believe in the name. And we focused at the very end of that lesson the significance of the name and and the belief in the name that it wasn't something magical uh, and you know we don't usually use those kind of words but it wasn't something uh, supernatural in the sense that you know if I give you this secret word then you could have eternal life but rather that it was a it was a reflection upon the very person and especially in a disciple master relationship. And to believe in the name, like we say, is not a formula. It's a Hebrew context. It's to be faith. It's to faithfully follow the one. So it's a master and a disciple. Okay. I gave you this little brief picture of embers just to set the stage. And you, you, anybody that's lived outside of America, or maybe in America itself, if you've ever had to depend upon a fire to keep warm or to cook, you know this to be true. Anybody that's burned charcoal knows this as well, hopefully. And that is that if they're all separate, they don't burn as well as when they're all together. And that somehow the collective can produce more heat than each one individually. Cumulatively, even. So, what we need to understand is John's words are loaded with meaning. When we looked at the singular and the plural, the number, as it's called, the number moving through the words in the book of 1 John, we saw that John very pointedly chose plural or singular, based upon what he was trying to say, which is totally missing from the English. First of all, Bible study is not a mystery where we have to be linguists to get it. God speaks in our language. He speaks in English when we read the English Bible. So it's not that, it's not that we can't know it. It's that we were content with knowing what we knew. You can discover these same things. Anyone can discover these same things. It's not something uh, that takes scholarship, as you know. Uh, I, I pride myself in not being a scholar. That I'm a simple man who simply wants to read God's word. Like embers, the congregation also can be cooling. Not only is that heat dependent upon one another, if you separate them, or if you introduce in the midst of them all of them cool. You've seen it when you have a charcoal fire and you pour water on it. All the coals are affected. Not just the ones that are hit with the, with the water. 
Alone, all the embers quickly cool, whereas close together, the combined heat exceeds the heat of any single coal, as we saw. What does that have to do with sin and disobedience? Sin is disobedience. Righteousness is as righteous does. By the way, if you hadn't got that from 1 John, and the number of times you've read, written it, read it already, you haven't been reading it. Righteous is what righteous does. Anybody that believes that there is only righteousness that is imputed to us as followers of Messiah hasn't read the book of 1 John. Because he says, righteousness is that righteous is he who practices righteousness is righteous. Practices in the active, in the present, in the active uh, voice, in the present tense. You do it. Not it's done to you. Active voice means that you do it. Yeah, sounds exactly like James. Yeah. In the reverse, anyone who has disobeyed, has not acted righteousness, has sinned. Is it possible for a righteous man to sin? Yes, absolutely. Is it possible for a sinner, a pagan, who does not know God, to act righteously? Yes. Okay? This is the big mistake that we make, is that we automatically assume when somebody does something good and valuable, that if they're not a believer, it's void. It's not. I think the book of 1 John gives us great things to hang our hat on with that regard, but the Torah really does. If you obey me, it doesn't say if you obey me and you believe in your heart. If you obey me, I will bless you. Period. Yeah. Even if you're not a very good Jew, but you obey me, and whatever you obey me in, you'll be blessed. It's true. Does it require faith to be obedient? I don't believe... Well, let me, let me be careful how we say this. Does it require faith to be obedient? I believe it does require faith to be obedient. Does it require faith for me to do something right sometime? No. That's the difference between a sinner who does good things, and a righteous man who does good things. A righteous man doesn't do righteous acts by accident. That's right. They're choices that he makes. But a sinner could do righteous things. For, for impure motives, whatever. But God, by, by, by the way, God says that regardless of the motive, if you do these things, it will be life for you. He doesn't say if your motives are right. Yeshua calls us to a greater righteousness, as we've seen as we'll see next, week, next time we do a lesson. He calls us to a greater righteousness. What is that greater righteousness? Well, that's something more than simple obedience. No question. But it's the obedience born of faith, which I would say that to be obedient, you have to have faith. Not just all accidental. Can sin be collective or is it always accounted as individual? This is the thing where number in the, in the book of First John opens the window for us to begin to look, and if, you're, if you did your homework, you know this, opens a window for us to look at, wait a minute, you know when God talks about sin in the Torah, He talks about sin collectively. He talks about to the people collectively, and in the prophets, certainly. You, not individuals, you, Israel, have sinned. Were there some who hadn't? Yes. There were some righteous people. Elijah was told 7,000 have not bowed the knee to Baal. But it was Israel that was receiving God's judgment and curses. Did those 7,000 receive it as well? That's part, of the, that's part of the program if you're a group. You take the good and you take the bad. Same with David and the That's right. Right. You know, and then you know, we can't give you the oil. We can't give you this righteousness. We can't. You know, give you excellent, the, excellent give you point. Excellent point. However, um, this does not diminish the fact that individuals are a part of this equation. If individuals in Israel had not sinned, then the prophets wouldn't have come to say you've sinned, right? So obviously, individuals are contributing. That's the picture of the coal again. The coals are producing their own heat, but when it's collected together, it's more. One and I believe, you know, this sounds kind of hocus pocus, but I believe it. I believe that if all Israel would keep Shabbat, just one, just one Messiah would come. Uh, 
All Israel suffered for the man of one man. That is a. I wish I'd included that in the homework when you said that, because that's that's the perfect example of what we're talking about. Yeah. I, I I gotta say that as you as you reveal what we're trying to learn here, when you had us read the plural sense of this, yeah, I personally was blown away. Yeah, I had no idea that most of the verses that I've committed to memory. If you can, if we confess, if we yeah. confess our sin, it's not just we. It's plural. Like, okay, I'm talking to all of you guys. So, no, no, he's not in, being inclusive. He's actually saying, if we confess, and the and the verb confess is plural. So, if we confess our sins, and it, you know, uh, but the concept of collective sin. Just let's step back and let's let's remember as as evangelical Christianity because that's the, our. Most of our history um, comes from, not not to say it's wrong, but in this area, it's interesting how they focus. They are very good at understanding original sin as a collective. Everybody's a sinner. You're all you're putting the sinner pot to start with. Not that I disagree with that, right? And somehow you're going to get pulled out of that. You're going to get redeemed. You're going to get saved. You're going to pull out. You know, I'll be in the sinner pot. But the idea that original sin. Uh, uh, except for the original sin, the idea of collective sin or collective righteousness is something that's absent from Christianity. We, we do it when we pray for our nation. We are humble. That's right. We do it then, but we don't necessarily do it when we talk about when you walk through those church doors. Oh, that's different. Now, that's the inner group. And sin in there, although we would abhor it, has no bearing on the rest of us. It's why churches across America, around the world, are filled with people who are openly engaged in sin, and pastors go, I don't want to drive them away. Giving units. That's right. Well, giving units is a better, better reason, probably. <laughs> and actually, that's the question why? Giving units. <laughs> It is. Presumably, the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren maybe had nothing to do with whatever sin was committed by the father, but yet there's still an impact there. There's still absolutely consequence downstream. They're part of a collective family tied to that. I don't want to be unfair to evangelical Christianity to say that they don't get this concept, but it's de-emphasized. Judaism gets it and keeps reinforcing it. To the point, as we say, if, if everybody keeps Shabbat, just one Shabbat, Messiah will come. That idea is like, if we can get it all, if we can all do something. Christianity is so afraid of works that they de-emphasize the very things that God's called us to exhibit His righteousness. Although the concepts of Tabdeh and Tahor are not always related to sin, and you did the study, you know this to be true. They're not always related to sin. They could teach us how individual sin affects corporate. How? For instance, we looked at Leviticus uh, 7.21, where if you ate the peace offering while you were Tameh, you'd be cut off. What was it to be cut off? We'll look at that in a moment. Leviticus 12.1-8, after childbirth, a woman is Tameh. It's not sin. It's actually in faithfulness to a commandment. Be fruitful and multiply. And the blessing of God. That's right. He's blessed them. Yet, she's Tameh. And depending on how long, whether it's a male or a female child, she's Tameh for a, sometimes a very long time. Uh, Leviticus 13. And I had you look at 13 and 14 because the leper passages are very instructive in this concept. Uh, setting aside the notion, which I personally believe to be true, that leprosy did not alight on someone without cause. Setting aside that notion, how did the leper become clean? Did he stop sinning? It's only two ways. He has two ways to get clean. Until he's completely covered, and then he's tahor. Obviously, there's another way. The priest looks at him and goes, It's gone. You no longer tameh which in the history of Israel has only happened a few times. 
This is not leprosy. Everybody gets that, right? This is something different. And we say leper and we say leprosy because good people in the King James time didn't know what else to call it. But Zarat is a, I believe, is a, is a God thing related to Karat that it is the, what's on the inside is being exhibited on the outside. And what's on the inside is bitterness and hatred being exhibited outside. And we see that in spec- specifically in Numbers chapter 12 with Miriam. Yeah. Leviticus 15. A woman's mi- monthly cycle is Tameh. Is that sin? Heavens, no. God, God created it. It's, it's a good function. So, it's not sin. Then what's the point? Sorry, I went, went too far. What would be the consequence of someone to Tamei and be in the temple or the tabernacle? Even if it wasn't because of their own sin. There are some instances, you have to be careful with this, because there's the belief that somehow Tamei is transmittable multiple times. And there are, there are cases where it is transmittable, but not multiple times. Okay? So it's possible for me to be Tamei, in some instances, and make you tame without telling you, without your knowledge. That's scary. Now I go to the temple. What's the consequence? Yom Kippur. Well, maybe not, but Yom Kippur is the, is the example of why there was a Yom Kippur. Because throughout the year, by accident, yes, people come in with dirt on their feet, figuratively. And the temple needs to be kept clean. Tahor. But what is the consequence if, if the Yom Kippur offering was not accepted? What would be the consequence? Would God remain? Now, that's a, that's a hypothetical we shouldn't actually fully examine because he promised to remain forever. But, but the, also, the notion is... He also said, you've got to do this every day. That's right. But the, but the notion is that it's because you're faithful to what I said. Right? So they had, in other words, if God's going to be in their midst, they have to honor Tamantahor. I think better than the temple is, is, the, is the tabernacle in the wilderness. Yep. You, know, you, you, you may not um, have your latrine here. Because I and walk amongst you. Among you. That's right. You, you, this, this is not possible. So you can see, now just taking this picture, I remember, we're thinking, how would Judaism... If the history were different, how would Judaism be treating this book, reading this book? Gives us an idea how John would have been treating it, Yochanan. Can you see how the entire congregation is responsible for maintaining sanctity of the tabernacle? How do you maintain sanctity of the tabernacle? Do I just have to worry about if I'm in Jerusalem? No. Because Tamei can go with me. How long can it go with me? If I've touched a dead person, or, as the Mishnah describes, under the covering and eaves of a house as a dead person in it. I'm Tamei. Indefinitely. Until I get ashes of a red heifer. That's right. And two mikvot. And we have seven days before and after and one in the middle. So, we have a big issue, by the way, just so that you all want to, if you all are curious, today you're Tamei. And there's no hope for you tomorrow you will still be Tamei. If you wash at evening, you'll still be Tamei. So if you follow, as I would encourage you to do, if you follow the commandments regarding Tamei and Tahor, don't be under the misunderstanding that you are Tahor, because you're not. Because we have all been in contact with death. In some degree, I would imagine maybe babies are not there. (laughs) But in some degree, if you've ever been in any location where there are dead people, you're Tamei. And you haven't had the ashes of a red ever, you're not Tahor. It doesn't mean that our, our wives should not practice uh, immersion. It doesn't mean that we should not practice immersion, that we shouldn't do that. Those are things we should do, I believe. But it doesn't make us Tahor. Not to worry, there's no tabernacle or temple yet. Yes. That's why we're keen, keeping Don doing it, to remind ourselves to be ready for the moment. So are there individual sins that are similar to affect the sanctity of the congregation? Which individual sins? All? I mean, every time I sin, do I, do I pollute you guys? Is that what I'm saying? I hope not. 
Well, we're all in trouble because what? How many of there? We say there's over ten years. What? Wait, one, two, three, four, five, six, twelve, thirteen. So uh, odds are, we're always in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Today, without a, a temple standing, uh, to what extent does Judaism take the laws of Tamantahor and apply them to the shul? Uh, it, actually, they do. They do. And and I agree with that. And the reason why is is because it's teaching this principle. Here's another example. If you have a cold, you have you have you have something coming out of your nose. You should not put on tefillin. Because you have a, an emission, you should not put on tefillin until you have gone through the prescribed. This is my personal feeling. Until you go through the prescribed, you know, you need to be very careful. It's a reminder that we have a personal responsibility for sanctity for one another. I have to tell you, think about this for a moment. And I'm not saying that it's devoid from Christianity's notion because it's not. They they get this a bit. But they're not serious about it. Not like Judaism is. If you start thinking about when I do affects Johnny. Not just Johnny. But everybody that's a believer around me. That's, that's some powerful motivation if you think about it. We think about it in the, in the context of like physical illness. If I have a cold, I'll stay home. You got it. Get anybody sick. Yeah. But, but we, yeah, you're right. We don't think about it. I think this is a, and John didn't hide it, it's there. But I think this is one of his motivations. Is he's talking to a bunch of people who really do know the Master, who are following him, and he's reminding them. You know, the whole group, he's reminding them. Sin in any one of you affects all of you. And as we'll look in the next lesson, righteousness as well. What is it to put to death and cut off? Leviticus 17 says, No eating blood, or you'll be cut off from disobedience. Leviticus 18, the passage we gave there, says, Sexual intercourse during menstruation, idolatry, blasphemy, homosexuality, they defile the land. They defile the land? How's that happen? You could start in Genesis and see. It says, The, the, the ground itself cried out. Do you know that when we don't execute murderers, even Christian ones, that we actually are polluting the land. Fortunately, this is not the holy land. That'd be worse. Gives you a different twist on environmentalists, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I've, always, I've always said that if someone really cares about saving the earth, they would follow the Torah's prescription for the land. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the children of Israel were put out of the land. For those things. And, and they did not give the land its rest. That's right. And God, God threw them out. Land needs a rest. I mean, these are, if, when you read the Torah, and this is why we have people that are detractors going, are you kidding? This stuff's so arcane and archaic. I mean, this stuff is amazing. Well, you can't eat the fruit of a tree until the third year? What's up with that? And only after... And not during Shemitah. It's like, wow, man. What difference would that make? We're polluting the land. Sin pollutes the land. But think of the land. Remember, the land is a place for people to live. Or he puts them out. Right? So it's a collective issue. The land is a collective picture. Leviticus 20. Idolatry, spiritism, that was ha- having to do with a, uh, a medium. Cursing of the father and mother. Adultery, cut off from the congregation or put to death, depending on the one. What is it to be cut off? Murders. Numbers chapter 35. Murders were to be put to death. Even an accidental manslaughter. If you didn't run to a city of refuge, you were to be put to death. Even when somebody died accidentally in a field and, we, and it looked like he was killed, not just kill over the heart attack, they somehow had to deal with it. Let's go, okay, which village is the closest? Okay, it's your job over there. The village has to come out, not just, not just to deal with this death and judge it or whatever else, but they break some poor <laughs> ox's neck. <laughs> 
you know, and water, by the way. <laughs> this reminds me of uh, someone in Israel gets taken hostage, like the whole nation yeah. will go after that person, that one person. Uh, taken we, we, we can't. We, we can't, and that's true, uh, not to glorify Israel too much, although that's, I don't know if that's possible, but uh, not to glorify it too much, but Israel does not have the death penalty for anything. That's why terrorists are being released, because they're being held. Whereas if they were put to death, we wouldn't have a problem. Isn't part of the reason that there's a death penalty due to the fact that the standard for meeting out the death penalty is incredibly high the Torah is, no, no, and that's to be fair, you know, that's, oh, by the way, the answer to your detractors, oh, we still start stoning our children, it's like, if you can come up with three witnesses yet. <laughs> you know, adultery, never in the history of Israel has been recorded that anyone was ever stoned for adultery. Why? Uh, three eyewitnesses? <laughs> that's a brazen gun. That's a pretty hard thing to do, yeah. Well, we <laughs> have some evidence of it, yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> Pinchas dealt with that one. Uh, Idolaters are put to death in Deuteronomy chapter 13. What, what is the definition? Just for a little quiz here, know, know your passages. What's the definition of an idolater there? That's exactly right. Judaism is very kind to Christianity today because they know that especially evangelical Christians are the friends of Israel, as they should be. And they're rewarded even by the Orthodox, even though they don't want to hear from them, don't like them, they're rewarded with the special blessing of saying, okay, so Christianity is not idolatry. <laughs> but if it's against the Torah, it is. That's God's definition. So are you going to start killing Christians? No. Uh, I have to kill myself. Uh, karat. What is karat? To be cut off. The Mishnah does a great job on this. Karat is very well defined in Judaism. It's funny when I read about people saying they're going to be cut off and then people are like, so you're going to start putting people to death? No, it says cut off. It's the equivalent, but it's saying turn it over to God. God will do it. It's to be put out of the community. Can you imagine being put out of the community, being worse than death? If you can't, you're not thinking like a Jew. This is the way we should be thinking. The community is so important to us that it would be worse than death not to have it. That's what karat is, to be cut off from the community. Why? We use the word excommunicate. And actually even the Talmud talks about using because when it gets put in English, that's the best way to say it. But that's, we have evidence of karat being, being practiced in the Talmud. One of my favorite, Eliezer, Bin Hirkanas was karat. It's cut off. Uh, one of my least favorite, although he's a great rabbi. Akiva was the one that delivered the sentence with a grin on his face, no doubt. His former, his former master. To say, you, the council has decided that you are not to be spoken to. You are outside the community. He was, he was married to the head of the Sanhedrin, Hedrin's wife, or uh, uh, sister, but he was cut off from the community. Do you know why? This is important. Why was Eliezer cut off from the community? Is it because he confessed Yeshua? He may have, but that, may, that wasn't why he was cut off. It's a very famous part in the Talmud where Eliezer is in a degree, disagreement with the rest of the, of the council, the Sanhedrin, on a proper halakha. It's, it's fairly arcane, it, it, and it's probably immaterial. It, it is immaterial. You know the way the Talmud strains at gnats. He's talking about whether, you can, whether an oven, if it's packed in sand, could still be tummy. He says it, it can't. It can't be tummy. It's packed in sand. Whereas the council says, no, we say that's not true. Well, th- where does it say in the Bible that? It doesn't say anything. You know why he was cut off? Because he didn't agree with the majority. Now the Talmud is full of people disagreeing. But in the end, everybody goes, but I'll go along with the group. 
This is what I think, but I'll go along with the group. Now, I'm not talking about compromising your values or compromising scripture. We're not talking about that. We're talking about compromising halakha. Eliezer was cut off because he wouldn't give in on his personal halakha to the community. Think about that for a second. That's pretty profound. Not to say that, and by the way, he did repent, eventually. But not to say that, that they were right in doing this. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to draw any conclusions to that. My point here is, though, that it was so important to be part of the group that he was willing not, but he was still willing to stick to his guns on a personal halakhic issue that Scripture did not even say. At the risk of the community. What's the risk? Tameh. Well, who knows? We don't pack ovens in sand all the time, but who knows? He might do it or teach others to do it too. And then we'll be tummy. Get it? The community's important. The Mishnah has a really big deal about the divine sentence. And when you read the divine sentence to be cut off, you can see that it, that, that it, was, it was a clear faith that God would deal with them somehow, maybe not now. Then the, well, I will love one of the one of the one of the rabbis that are in the Talmud talking about this issue. Said, uh, "How do we know? I may have put it in there. How do we know that? Uh, how do we know that uh, the divine punishment will be meted out? Well, it just hasn't happened yet. Somebody's still alive. It just hasn't happened yet. We did our part. God will do His eventually." We call it excommunication. It's far more than that. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm going to read this real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says, starting in verse 1, it, actually is, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. What's the problem with that? Other than your sensibilities today, what's the problem with that? The Torah says specifically he can't do this. Oh, Paul's antinomian? I don't think so. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, I have already judged as though I were present. He's saying, hey look, I'm not a part of y'all in this part. I've already dealt with this. I'm not taking the heat for this. In the name of our of our Lord, excuse me, I have Hashem here in my, in my prayers. I do replacements of Lord. In the name of our Lord, Yeshua Messiah, when, we are gathered, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Yeshua Messiah, deliver such a one to Hasatan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Yeshua. Wow. I mean, we, you know this passage. It's pretty strong language. It's like, couldn't we just counsel a guy? You know? Giving unit. That's probably why they were boasting. Hey, this is the richest guy here. We ain't getting rid of him. We'll help him through this. <laughs> and listen, I hear this all the time saying, listen, it's all about repentance. And it is. But not in this case. It's about cleanliness in the congregation. And he's saying, hopefully, it'll work. But regardless, whether his soul is redeemed or not, we don't want him around. 2 Corinthians implies implies that this worked. In 2 Corinthians 2.4 it says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears that you should not be grieved but that you might know the love which I have abundantly for you. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you have to have some extent not to be too severe. The punishment which is inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. And it goes on to explain his, his repentance and that he should be forgiven. Who did he sin against? David says, against you only have I sinned. And we know that ultimately our sin is only against God. But the man had injured the community. And so he needed to be forgiven for that injury. And hopefully that's the guy we're talking about. Rabbi Mayer said, and I love this, Rabbi Mayer said, great is repentance. And in, uh, <laughs> this is the one in Makot uh, 13b, I'll have to read it. Um, 
Rabina said, after all the various explanations offered, we must come back to the original statement of Rabbi Akiva, namely, that if those liable to Karat should resort to repentance, the heavenly tribunal would grant them remission. In regard to the objection, now after all, have they not yet repented? I retort, the penalty of Karat has not yet been decided either. But uh, this statement by Rabbi Mayer, this is a principal statement of Judaism. Great is repentance. And we hang things on the 13 principles of Rambam. This is, this is a Mishnaic. This is the Mishnaic message. Great is repentance. This is the message of our, of our master. Now, I had you look up these four sins. I had an ulterior motive. Ezekiel chapter 33, 25 through 26. What are the sins listed? Let me read them to you. Therefore, say to them, thus says the Lord God, you eat meat with blood, you lift up your eyes towards idols and shed blood. Should you then possess the land, you rely on your sword, you commit abominations, and you defile one another's wives. Then you should possess the land for sins, adultery, or excuse me, idolatry, sexual sin, eating blood, and murder. Those are four sins. Who's being spoken to? He said to them. If you go up to verse uh, 24, I believe it is, it says, it's speaking to Israel. Acts 19, or Acts 15, verses 19 through 21. Therefore I judge we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we should write to them to abstain from these things, polluted by idols, sexual immorality, things strangled, and from blood. Well, in this case, it'd be two things from blood, right? That's why blood is most likely murder. And most scholars would agree it's murder. So thing strangled is, you eat blood. Same things. Same four sins. Why these? Now, I think that it's really good to think, well, this is a good starting point, or these are categories, and I've taught that all along. These are categories of sins. Everything can be traced, almost everything in the Torah can be put in these four categories. Well, but maybe there's something else as well. The Torah, it's, it's all the first category, right? Say what? Yeah, well, that's true. Idolatry. Yeah. But I think there's something else as well. And I think this is, I think this is the, the point that John's making in use of plurals here. All sin is grievous, but some sins corrupt more more than the individual. It's ironic that it's sometimes the private sins that no one knows about that corrupt more than the individual most. You think, hey, it's just me. What's the difference? I'm out of town. No one will know. No one will know. Well, we could say, you know, be not deceived, God is not mocked, whatever you sow, you'll reap. A, 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 be sure your sins will find you out. But what if they don't? You're polluting more in these four sins. Now I'm, just, I'm just listing these four. In these four sins, you're polluting more than yourself. They pollute the congregation. My sense as I was going through this is as a father we should have a very high regard for what you're teaching right now. Because as fathers we can affect our families in this very same way. If you haven't been married long enough, if you haven't been kids long enough to realize that, that your sin, your daily sin affects your family, your bride, your marriage. Profoundly. You, You just... Anybody that's had kids that get above age two can see their sins being repeated by their children. And it's not just because they saw you do it. Because maybe they didn't. That's right. What is that? What is that? It's a genetic garbage? I don't think so. I think it's more than that. I think our sin pollutes the community. Not all sin. Think about it. What are we talking about with Taman Tahor? Is everything make you unclean? No, just these things make you unclean. These things you need to prepare yourself and think about the congregation before you go into my midst in the congregation. Ephesians 5 and I don't, I don't write that down. Ephesians 5, 5 says, For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man, who is an idolater, has inheritance in the kingdom of Messiah. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 14 through 20. And God, 
uh, start in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Messiah? Shall then I take the members of Messiah and make them members of a harlot? Think about that for a moment. Now we talk about that as like the members of Messiah. Okay, so, so am I taking Yeshua with me in there? I don't think that's what's talking about. I'm talking members of Messiah. What's the, what's the body of Messiah? Is us, not him. You know, the whole Catholic notion is that God in the room, the Holy Spirit covers his eyes when, 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 when a husband and wife are together. It's like, come on. We're talking, about, we're talking about joining the body of Messiah, the body of Messiah participating in our sins, especially these sins. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-4. Verse 3 is in the plural, verse 4 is in the singular. I'm going to read it. Those of you who have uh, study, study software, you're probably doing this now, right? I, I do. <laughs> I thought I have it. Here it is. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's plural. That you should abstain from sexual immorality. That's plural. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. I think that's a perfect verse describing what I'm talking about. The group needs to know we need not to do this. You as individual need to know not to do it because it affects the group. Revelation 22. I have to read this one. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, and idolaters. The only thing missing there is they don't eat kosher. Same ones, same groups, same sins. You're outside, not inside. Why? Sin affects the community. Lastly, First John. I know we, we said we were studying First John, so let's go to it. 1 John chapter 5, 16-18 If anyone sees his brother sinning in a sin not leading to death, he should ask and God will give him life for those who sin not leading to death. What's a sin leading to death? Something that would involve karat or capital punishment. There is a sin leading to death. I don't say you should make a request concerning this. That's a disturbing thought, isn't it? Why? Why does he say that? What's he talk, what kind of prayer is he talking about here? Is he talking about while you're in your room, you know, I heard so-and-so is in sin and I should pray for them. Is that what he's talking about? He's talking to them as a group, collectively. So what's he saying? He's saying, don't have them come into that group to somehow have their sins remitted, if it were possible. Pray for him in the group. Oh, let's all lay hands on him. Maybe God will free him from this adultery. No, don't have anything to do with the guy. That's a sin leading to death. Put him out of your midst. Wow, can you imagine what congregations would be like? I know it seems kind of strict and unfair. But the motivation, listen, every one of us makes a choice to sin. That means if we make a choice, we need motivation not to. This is more good motivation not to. I, I, I even put it beyond that. Um, we, we contaminate the rest. That's right. When uh, parents take the hard stand to put a child out, you know, because they just, they're contaminating the rest of the kids. Yeah. They're, they're living in sin, they refuse to be obedient, and so forth, and they put them out. They are demonstrating that, that tough love, and it's on both sides. I, I got to teach you a lesson that you can't learn, obviously, from me. And I can't let you continue to do it. That's right. You want to say something? Yeah, along with that idea of contamination, um, one of the things as parents and as future parents and leaders in our own communities, if you look at these idolatry, sexual sin, eating blood, murder, uh, those are the very things that most people entertain themselves with media. That's true. And I cannot tell you the impact it has on the sons and Absolutely. daughters. Their worldview, their perspective on life is altered, changed, influenced tremendously by this. And going to Revelations 18, it talks about the cup of Babylon. It says, For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the 
path of her fornication or sexual immorality. That's right. And you know, it goes and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. It almost is like, could we possibly be supporting idolatry, sexual sin, even blood, murder? For entertainment, for pleasure, for whatever it is, right. and say, "Oh yeah, I'm going to bring that into my own home. Give that as a heritage to my own children." And, you know, I mm. think we need to really say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! May we not be among those who drunk from this cup of Babylon?" Because right after that, we read about the destruction of all those who drunk from that cup. So, I think it should be something we. Thank you, Josh. I agree. Um, this this idea of uh, removing someone who falls into one of these categories from the congregation. It's interesting because um, prior to, to coming into Torah, Hebrews, Messianic Judaism, whatever label you want to use, the church that we were at for 11 years before we came into the I always, you know, you always could hear the rumors around, you know, around the congregation on Sunday or Wednesday, or, you know, so-and-so is, is, you know, doing this, or so-and-so sleeping with, you know, you just kind of, you know, but nothing, but there was never really anything. No rumor of what happened? Never, well, there was nothing that was ever really done, and then that was contrasted with the, the, the congregation that we then started attending uh, where, uh, and I'll never forget this, we had been attending uh, Congregation Bethlehem for maybe four or five months and we, we walk in for sh uh, Shabbat service one morning and uh, at a certain point in the service uh, the uh, leader of the congregation uh, says alright and this would normally, this, this was sort of after the Torah service and everything, and normally he, he would be getting ready to share his message. And he said, okay, he said, uh, he said if you're visiting here today, he said, um, just hang with us here. We have some family business to take care of. And, uh, and he called up an individual from the, like, who was there, and it was a young woman, and she had fallen in sin, and and this was this had kind of happened before we started attending, so we don't really we didn't know anything about the history of it all. But she had fallen in sin, and so she was at the time of when it was happening, she was approached, and she you know wouldn't repent and so forth. And so it was the counsel of the leadership of the congregation to put her out of the congregation, and. But then, and, and that had been like, I don't know, seven or eight months prior. Well, in that time, uh, uh, she, this individual had repented, come back and met with the rabbis and, and had asked for forgiveness and got some counsel and so forth and so on. And so what, once the leadership had determined that this person, okay, had, was genuine in their repentance, had you know, and had made attempts to try to amend the situation and so forth. Then, on a Shabbat, a Shabbat service, he calls this individual up, and he and the rabbi said, and he of course gave no details. He just said, you know, as you know, uh, uh, this individual fell into sin. But she's repented to us. She's repented before God, and it's time for us to receive her back into the fold. Good. And so publicly, they received her. Second Corinthians four. Because she was a woman, a woman because she was a woman. You know, so the women in the congregation went up and just kind of, kind of huddled around her, and they blessed her, and, and it was like, okay, nothing's. It was like nothing ever happened. And I thought, well. That is the way yeah. it's yeah. done. Yeah. That is scriptural. Yeah. You know? And when that person does come back, then, and they've made the proper repentance and done the right things, then 
we sh we are obligated to receive. Absolutely, that. absolutely. And uh, it was, it was a that is that is that happened wonderful. The seven years that we were there for we that happened you know, two or three other times. That's a great, that is a great story. You know, there are times, I was telling Joshua about this, you know, there are times that you almost uh, tire, faint. You know, because I, you know, I, I, I was very active in churches that we were in before. And not just here, but engage in conversation with leadership over sin that they know about, but would not deal with. The irony is that the moment that someone starts teaching to keep the law, that person will be dealt with. Yeah. But it's not general in churches that uh, the people don't really get in trouble. But they all agree on one person when they do the wrong thing. The pastor, they always get him. That's true. Yeah. Uh, whereas if the pastor had been like like your rabbis, he would, they would have recognized all along that their congregation, their congregation was being, was suffering, was wasting away, no matter how good their preaching was, because they would not deal with sin in the midst. And we're not just talking about people being, you know, having a bad week. We're talking about these four sins. Not to be a complete downer. I want you to think about, begin thinking about what we'll do in the next lesson. Righteousness has a redeeming, a corporate redeeming value. Let's think about these things. If sin can work against us collectively, how much more can righteousness work for us? That's a profound thought if you start thinking about it. If you'll start taking some of these thoughts of the group the congregation, being joined to the congregation and being more important to you than death or life, being a part of the congregation, maybe you can understand why it was so important when someone comes and says, if you want to be a part of the congregation, you need to go through ritual conversion. Maybe you go, well, of course. I mean, I don't, it's not just about acceptance by y'all. I can't be accepted by God if I'm not a part of the congregation you start thinking about it. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it makes perfect sense. If your mindset is understanding that the congregation, the collective group, the people of God, the body of Messiah is the goal for attaching ourselves to God. I don't want you to misunderstand me, but I'm going to say something. You cannot be attached to God without being attached to the body. There are no individual salvations. We each must follow God. We each must choose to obey. But it's only through that unit that God has made covenant with us. He did not come to you, Alex, all by yourself and say, let's cut a covenant. He said, through my friend Abraham and his descendants and all the nations of the world, that's who I make my covenant with. But not with us individually. You did not make a deal. God made an agreement with a people. And our goal is so that we don't pollute that people. It's bad to pollute your family. And if you have kids, you know this is true. It's bad to pollute your family. Bad to pollute yourself, no doubt about it. But you're going to take the body of Messiah those places? See those things? That's, that's pretty troubling. Think about it. That's such an anti- <laughs> there are some there are some Jewish people you probably wouldn't want to be around but if you consider them family it's a little bit different isn't it all sin displeases God but some sins pollute the land and pollute the congregation understanding the plurals is an important clue to seeing this I, we didn't go into it but you read the passage confess your sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins in the plural so obviously people are sinning, right? Obviously. They're not putting each other out. Oh, I saw you lie yesterday. And I was like, We're not talking about that. We're talking about the sins that pollute. And they're named. 
You follow karat, you follow the sin leading to death, you know, you know the sins. 1 John 5, 16-18. If anyone sees his brother sinning in a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who, for those who, who sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say you should make a request concerning this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that whoever is born of God doesn't sin. This is where those tenses were important, wasn't it? Do you sin? I do. So I'm not born of God? No, you know that you are. What is it? It's the present. It's, it's in the present tense. Keep on sinning. Don't ever repent. How, how, does, that, how does that reconcile with Shaul's statement that the wages of sin is death? Is that the same thing as saying that the sin he's referring to there well, first of all, the sin that gave us all death wasn't one of those four sins. Eve picked fruit and ate it in disobedience to the instruction of God. She doubted God. And then Adam loved his wife more than he loved God. And actually, I don't think we got it from Eve. I got it from, we got it from Adam, period. So really, if you want to name it, Eve, idolatry. <laughs> so maybe so. <laughs> you know, Adam, Adam loved his wife more than he loved God, so she was an idol to him. So I don't know. There are sins leading to death. Is this what Ezekiel 33 and Acts 15 are referring to? I believe so. And I think this is why the, re- the reason why we've got to set the standard here. You guys are coming in. You definitely need to not be doing these things because this pollutes the community. We lost the land of Israel because of these sins. You're not coming in and saying, I'm a part of Israel, because we don't want you a part of Israel if you need to be involved in this kind of stuff. We're not our own. We've been bought for price. There it is. Questions? Comments? Everybody's quiet. I hope that means you didn't do your homework as opposed to it's a real downer. Good motivation. Especially for men. We have, we have opportunities to sin with our eyes and no one ever know. I don't know, your wife always knows. She can see your eyes. <laughs> but anyway, no one else ever knows. So uh, we just think about the, the opportunities that we have as men. And because we're, especially if we're heads of households, you know, we, 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 have, we have all the money. You know, the home stays there, I go elsewhere. In my profession, it's the 500-mile rule. Do whatever you want as long as you're 500 miles away. You know, and, and, and you know, that's, a, that's a sobering thought when you consider, I pollute my family. I pollute the congregation. Obviously, I don't want to sin against God, but I still choose to. I need a little better motivation, maybe, or a little more motivation. Just think about what it's doing. Mm-hmm. I know you're going to get into this next week. This doesn't work. That's fine. No, no, no. I, I agree with all of um, But as a motivation. As a motivation, the motivation, just the way I'm wired, my motivation is knowing that if I walk right, I can be a blessing to you. That's others, right. And I can affect the community. And it is one of the reasons why you guys are here. That's why I originally wrote this lesson as one lesson. <laughs> sin and righteousness together. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's outstanding. I, I agree completely. I mean, you know, when we, then I, you know, I hope this is just to wet your whistle. You know, I hope this is what we get with righteousness is we can come to the same, this should be an upper, the same motivation, a better motivation. By the way, the negative motivation is not a good motivation. God says, do this and be cursed. It didn't really work very well. But the blessing that he gives at the end of Deuteronomy 6, it says, and he's speaking to them collectively, if you will keep my commandments and my statutes, it will be righteousness for you. That's a pretty, that's a great motivation. Well, we'll finish, we'll do that next time. When the sages talk about, you know, as soon as the, the fast of Yom Kippur is over, before you, you know, break it, you know, drive the first nail of your sukkah, you know, the whole one 
That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is one of the things that's disappointing in people that badmouth the commandments, although they personally try to be moral people. You know them, good Christian people that love the Lord. There's no question. They love the Lord. They're passionate about personal righteousness, and they are righteous. But they don't want to admit it. They don't want to admit that anything that they do... Well, no, it's, it, they feel like that would be a sin for them to admit that I did something right. Exactly. They need to understand completely that, listen, you wouldn't even know what righteousness is if God didn't reveal it. So obviously everything comes from Him. But we take steps. And if you will keep His commandments, one commandment at a time, one foot in front of the other, you will, you will bear fruit. Just as sin bears fruit, so does righteousness. And righteousness fruit is far better. And far more re- far reaching. That's right. If you follow it, the blessings are far more far reaching than the curses. Now we're not talking about third and fourth generation. We're talking about for a thousand generations. That's wow. Shall we close? Well, I got to figure figure out the plurals here now. Collective. The collectives. I shouldn't be using that word. I'm an anti-communist, so. I thank you. We thank you. O Adonai, our God, that you have established our portion with those who dwell in study hall, and that you have not established our portion with idlers. For we arise early, and they arise early. We arise early for words of Torah, and they arise early for idle words. We toil, and they toil. We toil and receive reward, and they toil and do not receive reward. We run, and they run. We run to the life of the world to come, and they run to the pit of destruction. As it is written, and you, O God, who you will lower them into the well of destruction, men of bloodshed and deceit shall not live out half their days. But as for us, we will trust in you. Amen. Amen.